Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Creative Live, the world's best online classroom for creative professionals, with classes on songwriting, engineering, mixing, and mastering. Go to creativelive.com slash audio to start learning now. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is also brought to you by Protone Pedals, the secret tone weapon for guitar experts everywhere. Go to protonepedals.com to take your tone to the next level. And now your hosts, Joey Surges, Joel Wanasek, and Al Levy. All right, what's up, guys? Thanks for tuning into the show, and thanks to everyone at the forum for all the support. If you have questions or an idea for a topic you'd like us to discuss, visit www.joeysturgis.com podcast. You can also vote for the current questions and suggestions for next week's episode. I'm Joey Sturgis, and with me, as always, is Joel Wanasek and Al Levy. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Hey, what's up? Hello. Hola. If you haven't yet, check us out on Twitter, and you can get the links on the website. You can also ask us questions there, and we'll try to answer them on the show. I'm drinking a fat tire today. Is that any good? Yes, it's like the fucking best beer there is. I've been drinking a lot of that, um, I don't remember who makes it, Oktoberfest something or other. Maybe it's Sam Adams, or I don't know. I've been oh dr- God, don't tell me you're drinking the Sam Adams shit. I'm not a beer connoisseur. I'm more of a uh, food snob <laughs> than an alcoholic beverage snob. So Pond water. Dude, I tried that stuff last October, and I thought it tasted like shit. That's how I feel most beer tastes. You're not a beer guy, Al? Not, not at all. I have to be really drunk to enjoy beer. If you see me with a beer, I'm usually drunk. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's basically how it goes. I'm not going to just decide to drink beer. It's more just one of those, we got to keep this rolling somehow. And if I do another shot, I'm going to puke. So Beer it is. <laughs> let's go to, let's, uh, let's step off the gas a little, but keep the RPMs up, you know, sort yeah. of thing. So yeah, I, I'm not a beer guy. No, it's either wine or liquor for me. Well, if you learn how to drink, like you're from Wisconsin, you'd be able to do that pretty fast. You know, we don't, we don't sip beer like the rest of the country. We just go like that and the glass is gone. Then we do it again. And all of a sudden, four minutes later, you've had four or five beers and you know, you don't need a couple of shots. <laughs> You gotta piss a lot more though. <laughs> Maybe you guys have discovered that it tastes like shit. It's better to just get it over. Get it with. down. You got it. <laughs> that's awesome. Maybe that's it. Yeah. So what? Uh, uh, besides beer drinking and and not beer drinking, what's going on with you guys right now? What are you guys up to? Well, Cole Chamber just left my house. They just recorded here for a few weeks, so I've been in the re uh recovering my control room phase which is always interesting you know, recording a band called goliath while finishing up mixes while filming playthroughs while recording podcasts while hatching plans for universal domination it's a pretty hectic schedule but it's cool I like yeah. it. Yeah. What about you, Joel? We've been busy. We, uh, well, Joey, we got that Attila that's been coming out here and um, seems to be getting its fair share of hate and praise. So, <laughs> as always, yep. I love it. I love that band. They're so funny. You either, I feel like you either get it or you don't. And if you don't get it, you're going to be like, man, these guys suck. But if you get it, you'll be like, this is the most amazing band. Like, I, I could listen to Attila all day, every day. They're just hilarious. I get it. I love it. It's great. Yeah. I think a lot of people, take themselves too seriously and then try to also take Attila too seriously. And it's one of those things where you have to realize that um, at the end of the day, a band is just uh, an entertainment thing. You're just entertaining other people. So 
I mean, if you're not entertained by that, then I don't know. You're you suck. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's pretty entertaining. I'm not that familiar with the band, but I feel like it's so well presented and it gets people's attention so expertly. And they're doing so well that I don't feel like it's an accident. And I don't think that it's a product of people just fucking around at all. It, it seems to me like, and this is coming from someone who's not on the inside, it seems to me like a pretty, a pretty serious project with people, at least a few people that kind of know what they're doing. Well, one of the things I always say uh, during the session, and this happens because I've done like three records for them, so this happens a lot is he'll give me one of the lines and it'll just be so funny that when I hit stop, I'm just laughing hysterically. And then he starts laughing and we're both just like, man, this is so so awesome. Like we get to make money recording basically fart jokes. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I don't know. It's pretty awesome scenario. Um, I'm pretty stoked about working with them. I think it's, it's absolutely great when, when that can happen. And I wonder if the people that are hating are a majority or they're just that vocal minority that's on the internet that, you know, makes their presence super known. Their hate is so strong that they need to broadcast it to the world. But Attila is doing pretty damn well. So there's obviously a lot of people that love it and who get it. Yep. I just have this, I have this theory that lots of, lots of music lovers or band lovers or whatever don't actually post about it online (laughs) oh yeah that's true it's it's mostly um hate that you see like that's the motivation to actually write a comment is when you like dislike something but if you really like it you're just sitting there listening to it and you like it you're not going to be like oh i'm gonna make a comment and tell everyone in the world this is badass i like this like there's a couple people that do that but majority is the haters now i've read that there's lots of studies about this actually that the number one motivator to action online is anger this is a formally studied thing. That does not surprise me in the least. You you can see it experientially every single day going on the internet. People react with anger the strongest and uh, I guess praise in a bracket that's way underneath that and then technical details under that, I think. But yeah, the, the hate, the hate's strong. And I agree. It's like, if I really like something, it's, I'm going to listen to it when I'm living life and not online, I guess. Yeah. That makes sense. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. That's kind of cool. Um, it brings us to the point where, uh, what can a mix do for a song? Can it make us make or break a song? And I think, uh, in a way, the mix is is just as important as the song itself. It has to it has to help the song. And I've seen some situations online where I thought a song wasn't that great, but the mix like saved it. And there were people who were really into it, and they were making comments about you know, uh, oh man, the song really slams. But that doesn't necessarily mean the song is great. Well, I feel like one thing that a mix can do for a song, which is important is that if it's not a good song, it can give it its 15 minutes of fame. I don't think a great mix will make a bad song last forever or anything like that. Like it's not gonna, Obviously, it's not going to become a classic, but 
the bells and whistles, and I call it the car stereo test element. The car stereo test element's there enough to where people feel like they're watching the THX commercial at the movies or whatever, you know, where it's slamming enough, they'll like it for the time being and probably enough to purchase it or support the band in some way, shape, or form. So I think a great mix goes a really long way. Yeah, it's interesting because it kind of goes both ways. Like, I mean, I a little jaded one way because I'm an audio guy like you guys. And, you know, as audio guys, we'll listen to a song that sucks because the mix is amazing. So when I go through my rock mix reel, for example, in my car, I'm like, man, I like maybe three or four of these songs on here, but the mixes are incredible on everything, every single song. And, you know, they're all mixed by different guys and, you know, different A-listers and they all have different qualities that I enjoy. But I usually hate the songs, but I'll just keep listening to it because I'm analyzing the mixes. Now, that being said, if the mix absolutely blows on a song, a great song can still shine and be its great song. For example, you know, look at some of the you know, songs from the, that were mega hits from the, you know, many, many years ago when recording was starting out and they only had a few tracks and no one really knew what they were doing and there was no mixing. It was just kind of like, all right, we've got three tracks, you know, let's just hit play and capture the vibe of the song. And there's mistakes and imperfections and things like that. And, you know, no one really mixed per se so much back then. I mean, there was a lot of engineering going on, but um, those songs, you know, they're classics and you listen to the song and you don't care that the vocal is out of tune or, you know, the, Timing is well, off. Let me, let me ask you something about that. That brings up a question, and I've wondered this for a while. Are we accepting of that because it's old, and for the time it was cutting edge, or are we calling them classics because they're really great songs? Meaning, if that song, like Yesterday by the Beatles or something, something that's just been around forever and has made trillions of dollars, if that came out today and didn't sound very good, would it be even given the chance to get off the ground? Probably not. Definitely not in this market with the, the investment the way it is. I mean, every, as you guys know, every label that's out right now, they don't want to take risks. So you got to turn in a finished product if you're pitching pretty much. And really, hey, if we're going to invest, you know, a couple hundred K into your band, we want to know what it's going to sound like before we know what it's going to sound like. I think like Sonics have always been competitive and probably always will be uh the like character you know um back then i think even the beatles were a little bit on the cutting edge of of what they were doing with recording so that probably did play in they did they had good songs um obviously but the way that they were doing the production of the songs was also uh innovative as well absolutely and for the late 60s or early 70s being that you had nothing to compare it against, that was as modern as it got. Just like 10 years from now, the stuff that we think sounds huge probably won't sound as huge, even though I can't imagine what that's like. I know that just six years ago, I remember hearing an unnamed mix from a band that obviously influenced Attila, influenced that whole style. And... Heavy, heavy as balls is so heavy, so huge sounding for back then. It was kind of what everybody, what everybody used as the gold standard in like 2008, 2009 for breakdown stuff. And I just heard it again and it sounded kind of weak. And at the time I couldn't imagine stuff sounding bigger. Yeah, so, yeah, that is interesting because there's, I remember the first time I've, I heard the Offspring song, like the first single that was really big, and 
you know, I was into it when I was that age and it comes on the radio still now today. And I hear it and I'm like, man, that sounds awful. Like, gosh, I can't believe it's made it this far. <laughs> hey, the black album still sounds good. <laughs> yeah. And that's another interesting point is, um, stuff, you know, there are certain projects that were done a long time ago that were just so ahead of its time that it still competes with shit today. It's pretty awesome. You know what I just heard last night for the first time in ages is that song Party Hard by Andrew W.K. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah this dude. is fairly modern, actually. I wouldn't be surprised if I heard that coming out today, maybe with a couple of tweaks to the song to bring it up to date. But Yeah, I remember reading some, uh, some magazine articles about how he was basically layering the guitars, you know, tens of times. And I was uh, really fascinated about layering when I read that. And I think it just goes to show that if you are kind of a little bit of a mad scientist in terms of production, it always seems to pay off, um, you know, no matter how long it takes. Those songs are like huge hits. They'll be hits forever. They'll be played at birthday parties and weddings and clubs for eternity. And those recordings hold up. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It, maybe they don't hold up on a web forum, but like you just said, parties and nightclubs and all that forever. The true test of success, I think, stands for those songs. Yeah. Um, it's that thing where you make the right moves at the right time. Absolutely. Well, I think we're going to go ahead and jump into today's episode, guys. Uh, it's Monday, so here we go. It's time for Mix Grit Monday! Joining us today on Mix Crit Monday is Jensen Manning. Say hello, Jensen. Hey, guys. Hey, what's up, Jensen? Hey, Jensen. Jensen has mixed a track that we're going to critique, and we're going to share it with you right now. So check it out.
too long And we've been asleep for too long Now my brothers and sisters This is our chance This is our chance to break free Jensen, tell us a little bit about yourself, um, your history, your experience level. Give us some background. All right. So I live in a tiny town located in Montana. And for my band, we always wanted to go record, but we didn't really have the ability to go, like, really travel that far. So what I wanted to do is just start out and help my band out. And it just, it really broke out from there. And I just started expanding and expanding. And over time, just kept building stuff up. And it's getting to the point now where I want to, take it seriously and start, you know, getting help from people that know what they're doing so that I can, you know, be at a level where I can start making this my business and my career. Let me ask you something. Are you making any money doing this right now? No, not currently. So is this your band that you sent us the mix of, what we just heard? No, it's not. It's a band called South Korea in Vegas. Um, another studio did it and put it on some uh, a raw list and I downloaded it. So you didn't record this? No, I didn't. Okay, cool. So you mixed something that somebody else recorded. Correct. Tell us a little bit about this song and how it was recorded. Like, are these real drums? Are these fake drums? What do you know about the guitars? And what can you tell us about this yeah, break it recording? Down. Yeah. Okay, so I uh, downloaded everything and everything was, you know, foldered together pretty well. It had guitars, clean vocals, you know, uh, synths, track effects, back effects, things like that. Um, it did have bass MIDI and MIDI drums, which I prefer not to do bass MIDI, but I did it anyway. So the drums are programmed, and so I always usually run my drums through Superior Drummer, 
and then I'll bounce them all out separately and then trigger and blend from there. And with the bass, pretty much the same thing. I just ran it through Texas Grind because that's all I have currently at the moment. And then guitars were double-tracked, but um, at points they were quad-tracked. So there was a whole nother set of guitars to deal with within the mix. But at points it helped, it it really added to it. And then it had all the backing effects, synths, choirs, things like that. Did you get DIs or did you have to come up with your own amp sounds or sim sounds? Uh, There were DIs, so I came up with the guitar sounds myself. Cool. And what's going on? mastering wise do you have your own fake master did somebody else master this like what's the what's the story with that um no i actually usually don't let it get this loud did you so you did it yourself yeah yeah i did everything myself i haven't pushed it through an actual master but it was actually sounding good the way that i had it and i really wanted to get something out there just to uh you know get some help on so that's where i was at in the song what's kind of your mastering chain just curious because um uh, well before we start into the critique that's one of the things i'm going to be very curious about because of the downstream effects it had on the mix most of the time i just throw a uh the first thing i'll do is i'll do some eqing uh just that light eq to help in places that the mix may lack and really kind of tighten it up in there and then i'll throw uh usually a multi-band compressor on there usually just the stock studio one is what i do and um there i'll i'll throw like the the tri-comp on there or maybe not depending on how much i've compressed you know everything throughout the song what's the uh i've never heard that what's the tri-comp it's a it's a pretty basic uh multi-band compressor it's just got a high and low uh filter on it and then um you know you can change your frequencies through all that and you can compress as much as you want there's also a saturate option which I use uh, a little bit of saturation, but not a whole lot. Are you using two multiband compressors or just one? Um, I usually don't compress that hard with the other one, but I will use that one. So I guess it would be it would be two. But the tri-comp is it's a lot more basic and not as in-depth as the multiband, the first one that I do use. Gotcha. Okay. So tri-comp, even though it's called tri-comp, it's only got high and low, so it should be called dual-comp? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah, I've um, never heard of that one either. <laughs> Did you say Studio One as in you use the software Studio One? Yeah, yeah. They okay. actually um they have a really cool project thing where you can bring it into a project and it's just got your stereo track and you can uh see the levels and it's got a huge uh stereo meter or spectrum meter on it. It's actually really cool and really nice. What are you using to get your loudness? Um usually it's when I mix, I usually let it hit, um, I would say probably negative six, negative eight, and that's with everything. And then usually um, I won't do any loudness with EQ. Usually I let the uh, multiband and tri-comp kind of bring up the loudness of it. Okay, so it's like the multiband you're using to limit the mix or like Fox clip it or something like that, correct? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay, so let's start with um, what, Jensen, how do you feel about your mix and what is it about it that you wish could be better? The one thing after listening to it a few times, um, because you know, you always pick out those things, uh, I know that the kick could probably be a little more uh, prominent, a little bit, uh, I want to say a little bit clickier so you can kind of hear it a little bit more. Um, I felt like the guitar and bass and the low end actually went pretty nice because I I did sidechain the kick and the bass so that the the bass would actually fill up that low end versus the kick. Um, wishing the snare was a little bit more prominent and um, was not a big fan of the clean vocals, but 
did them how I thought, you know, they fit, they probably could have be turned up a little bit. But at a basic standpoint, that's about the best that I can think of right now. That brings up a question I've got, and this is our, this is mixed critique stuff. So talking about the low end, one of the main things I noticed is that it's a little bit unruly, and we can talk about how to get that under control. But first and foremost, what are you listening on? Because that's everything. Yeah, if you're listening to something that's got the bass boosted, I mean, you know, like not boosted, the opposite actually. If you're listening to something where the bass isn't enough or whatever, you might overcompensate. I just, I'd like to know yeah. what what you're what you're actually listening on. Um, I'll usually split it up. Uh, when I'm doing low end, I'll, I have Equator D5s that I use currently at the moment. Um, those are what I mostly mix through, but I'll put on my AT uh, M50s and I'll try to listen to the low end through that. Here's a big question. Yep. Do you have your speakers decoupled? Um, could you, I'm not really sure what you mean by that. I've never heard that term. Yeah, a lot of people will put the speakers on the desk or on the table. And uh, I don't know if you can see the video of what Joel's showing you there, but he's got his speakers decoupled from his desk. You can see that the speakers are on uh, a, like a sound absorbent uh, material, and then the sound absorbent material is on the table, and it prevents the speakers from resonating frequencies on the desk. Yep. Yeah. No, I... I have that. They are under foam at the moment, so... Cool. Yep. Yeah, for anyone who's listening, that's uh, that's Mix 101. If you're messing with your listening environment, you need to have your speakers decoupled. Well, and for you guitar players out there, if you are just need another example of how this works, just think about when you put your headstock against the wall and the guitar suddenly gets a lot louder and gets amazing low end unplugged it's the same exact thing your your desk becomes part of the sound which is not a good thing unless you decouple it so are are any of you guys familiar with the speakers he was talking about the never ones heard of them yeah same here not familiar what what price range are they in i actually uh i would say probably 400 500 bucks i actually bought them used from uh cory brumman okay cool yeah. So I want to talk about the uh, the low end some, and I know that you said that you wanted your you wanted your kick to be more prominent, and I've been I've been doing a lot of Skype critiques, and this is actually fairly common. So I feel like we should address this in as much detail as possible. But I don't think that I personally don't think that getting the kick more prominent is the issue. I think the issue is getting the low end under control and then the kick will be way uh, way easier to to hear. Everything will be easier to hear. It just it feels to me like it's swallowing everything. I would be interested to know what's on the actual bass chain. On the bass, I actually have uh, two tracks. I have one running through Amplitude through an SVT Pro. Uh, usually with that, I like to uh, kind of let that fill up my low end and kind of take away the high end just because I feel like Amplitude and that SVT Pro really helps bass and really makes it, kind of gives it that boomy sound. And then usually what I'll do is I'll run a Sans Amp for my um, highs to the bass and kind of blend them together 
and I'll bus them, and then I'll usually EQ from there. So you basically have a, a crossover setup. You've got the same bass track twice. The first track is your low end, and the second track is your high end, correct? Yes. And you've got high and low passes on those, or are you just letting the the actual chain create the the high and low pass effect? Um, no, I do have the effect on both both channels. Okay. I have three main issues, but we'll get to those. But definitely the low end was the first thing I noticed when I hit play and I went, holy crap, you know, it's like really out of control and all over the place. And on certain notes, you can really hear um, the bass boom and bloom and certain notes, it kind of like disappears. And it, um, the low end was so strong, I felt like it was even actually swallowing up the vocals. So I come from like a radio rock mixing background and things like that. And, you know, that's like you get killed if you turn in a mix or whatever you can, the bass follows the vocal. So, yeah. um, so what, what else do you have on your low end? Because I feel like, um, at least from my point of view, when I listen to the mix, the problem is a lot of everything going on below like 200, 150 or like, you know, the, the bottom end of the mix, the very low mids in there on your bass. And that's where we're really losing a lot of the definition and um, clarity of, of the whole song. Because one, it's too loud, but um, in my opinion. But two, um, like I said, it, it isn't controlled and it's flopping around, meaning it's not like limited or compressed enough. It's not like tight enough. There's too much movement and it's creating, um, it's affecting the whole mix because, you know, there's no consistency in the low end. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that uh, Joel and I often talk about, and it's it's kind of genre specific, but when it comes to music like this, you don't want the bass to fucking move at all. Um, and that can be, you can do that in a lot of different ways, all the way down to, you know, what takes you're choosing to keep. Um, you can be listening for how loud the low end is fluctuating. So even at the bottom of the barrel, um, you know, on the take end of things, you can be making sure that all of the bass parts that are plugged into the song have an even level of bass. But if you're working on a song that you didn't record yourself, then you might have to go in and actually adjust that yourself. And there's a couple different ways to do it. I mean, you can automate it or you can use a limiter. And I think um, we often use the limiter to just kind of keep the bass glued in place. I use a limiter a lot as well. I just want to jump in and say that I firmly agree with what you guys are saying about keeping the low end as fixed as possible for this style of music. And that's an interesting thing to bring up on, on this specific song because he told us, uh, as you know, the bass is programmed. Yep. So it stands to reason that all of the notes probably have an even amount of bass. It just depends on, you know, who created the actual sample library. But uh, lo and behold, here we are in a mix with a sampled bass that has a lot of fucking movement. So what do you guys say about that? Get it under control. <laughs> well, I just think it goes to show. And I've seen a lot of people argue against this what i'm about to say on forums and stuff but it goes to show that you can never trust what what you see written about like a bass instrument or something like that some sort of a plugin until you try it out for yourself just because it's supposed to be the solution and people say split your bass into two and use a synth bass for the low or whatever just because that's said you can't just do it and think that it's going to be fine you need to treat it as though it's a different scenario every time in my opinion and 
it also goes to show that these base products are not everything that they're piped up to be. Uh, there's there's a few of them also that I've tried that have like really weird intonation problems too. So it's not just that when it was sampled, certain notes were louder than others. Like you go past the fifth fret at certain velocities and suddenly it's totally out of tune. So I just think moral of the story is just because you throw on a virtual bass instrument, your problem is not solved of bass being inconsistent. And that's the reason I'm saying that also is because the leading thinking is once you replace a bass guitar and you throw in a synth bass, your consistency issues are solved. And that's just not the case, as we can see with this mix. Here's another question based off that. Do you use a bus compressor at all? Like like mix into like an SSL comp or something like that? No. Okay. That's something that, at least in my opinion, and I'm a huge bus compressor dude. I use three on my two bus, which probably sounds crazy and unorthodox to most people, but there's kind of a, there, there's a reason for the madness. And um, having a good bus compressor, I, in my opinion, is very important for locking in your low end and your kick and keeping it from flopping out all around the mix and, you know, keeping the energy um, of the bass and the kick and the bottom end locked down and controlled because it, you know, kind of creates a movement and a wave with the whole song. And if you dial it in right, um, it'll help solve some of that problem. So that's kind of like another strategy you could try employing other than just like, you know, limiting and compressing the bass, automating all the different notes is making sure that, you know, if you've got a two bus compressor on there, you know, you don't have to hit a lot of gain reduction or, you know, experiment and use your ear and listen to the bass and see if it helps lock in and tighten up the low end a little bit and gel it better. So when you hit play, that energy moves together in unison and is pumping together um, to create something, uh, you know, like an energy or an excitement or whatever mood the song is, as opposed to working against it. Yeah. yeah. The other thing I want to mention, you're using two multiband compressors. Um, you want to pay attention closely to the attack and release time on that low end um, because that is going to help you tame it quite a bit. Uh, fast attack and depending on the speed of the song, you have to adjust that release. But you definitely want the compressor, that band of the compressor, to be reacting to the low end uh, quite quickly. I'd be curious to know actually where the low end releases set on the multiband. For my uh, low end, I got an attack of 1 and a release of 591. Okay, so your release is very, very slow. And I would say... What's probably happening is that first bass note or whatever the, the, the low end of the mix comes through and is attacked immediately and then it takes a whole half of a second for the compressor to come back. So that means your bass is probably getting pushed down quite a bit. Uh, you may be overcompensating for that as well somewhere. What do you think about those uh, values, Al? I didn't say anything because I agree with what you just said wholeheartedly. Uh, that that's also what I think. And, you know, one thing that I guess needs to be noted is that a lot of compressors uh, also have a natural, I guess, a natural side effect of turning the low end down a little of, or removing a little bit, uh, depend, depending on which one. And I've noticed a lot of people overcompensate when that happens. And it, see, Jensen, I don't remember if you told us. Do you have a sub? No, I I don't. I use my headphones, my M50s. 
Yeah, that's another dangerous thing. Very. Um, using headphones to mix with. Uh, it's definitely worth saying that you should check your mix on headphones, but you shouldn't make... You should be making certain decisions based on what you hear in the headphones, but you shouldn't be making... I wouldn't say you would, should be making bass decisions on headphones. Um, if anything, I would probably take the mix out to my car and then make a decision on bass based on that before I would do that with headphones. Well, also on consumer rigs, like I feel like the car is great and any sort of lower line consumer type uh, product, like a boombox or whatever, with like the mega bass option anything like that i'm being serious i really think that that's great for checking this out because that's uh, you can know immediately if your stuff uh is farting basically (laughs) farting or uh destroying speakers or whatever gotta love that mega bass (laughs) dude mega bass is great a set of speakers that al and i use to check on are the bose companion 20s they're 250 bucks. They're like little PC speakers that you can get at Best Buy. Um, they're really cool because they will show you if you have way too much 150 hertz or not. Um, and if the bass is swallowing your vocals. So uh, if you guys are out there listening to this and you're looking for a second set of speakers to listen to and make decisions on, I would recommend those. I, I concur. And we're not the only guys who do this professionally, who use those as reference. Uh, I know I know that Colin Richardson loves them too. So that's, that's saying a lot because he rules. Hey, let's talk about the snare for a second because I, I feel like we've, we've just talked about bass forever. Now, I definitely feel like the bass is affecting everything. It's, it's one of those things that when it's overpowering, Literally everything gets swallowed, and so it's sometimes hard to tell in this situation if the problem is something else or the problem is just the bass and you get that under control and everything else shines. But I'm going to just go out on a limb and say that I feel like there's no real transient in the snare drum. Anybody agree with me on that? Yeah. I feel, I feel like okay. the whole mix is lacking transients. And I, my personal opinion is it's probably uh, from the mastering chain and how he's using it to jack the volume. Because I feel like, um, you know, for example, if you clip versus use like, you know, L2 to get your volume, um, L2 completely destroys your snare and all that stuff. And I feel like it makes it like I call it pancaking. It kind of cuts off the transient. Whereas you clip, you can bring it up or something used like FGX or Ozone. You can recover a lot of those transients. And I feel like um, maybe some of the two bus has something to do with that because that was a major issue I had when I listened to the mix. It was, I felt like it was missing transients. Like it wasn't there wasn't as clear. Um, as I would would have expect to have heard. Yeah, and if you have faster attack times on the high end and the mid range uh, portions of your multi band compressor, you're probably killing a lot of transients that are actually there. And that is funny because you can. There's a lot of people I think that they'll use a multi band compressor with short attack ranges, and then they'll try to compensate with for that with the transient designer and it, yep. it's kind of ironic because you're doing one thing and then combating it with another so um you could easily solve the problem just by uh making your attack times just a little bit longer if you have the ssl channel plugin on there and you have the fast attack 
uh, setting clicked in. There's nothing wrong with that for sure. Um, I've done it before, but you have to realize that if you do do that, you are basically shaving off a lot of the transient and just getting a ton of body and sustain. And so you do have to counteract that. Now, if you don't use the fast attack option, you're going to get tons of transient popping through there. And so then you have to treat that completely differently. Keep in mind, um, if you're listening here, you need to understand how frequency works. So high-end frequencies need a lot tighter settings on the attack and release because they move a lot quicker. They don't have as much energy as low-end does. So, you know, having the, the one millisecond attack on the low end is good because you're going to be hitting it quickly but uh, if you have a 150 millisecond attack you're getting tons of high frequencies that are there's a lot of frequency moving through there before it is even touched so i think we're really losing it on something with the way we're getting volume off those multi-bands on the mastering chain that would be the first place i would start looking and then if you know if you take it off and like the snare is really snappy and punchy and then you instantiate those plugins um and that ends that then you could pretty much guess that somewhere in there that's the problem it might just be the way it clips up or limits the you know the output algorithm of the plugin or something like that uh but if that isn't the case um then it's probably downstream i mean maybe it needs more treble or maybe it needs a transient designer but then again like i said i'm familiar with and i have the samples that you mentioned like the serif and the cla and those are all very transiented like they have a lot of impact and they're very snappy and have a lot of punch Maybe they're not aligned properly. This could also be true. Uh, snares are typically just not aligned well. And right there, no matter what you do, it's not going to pop the way it should. Like you could EQ it till you're under the table and it's not going to make a difference if the phase is weird. So I know that if the sample wasn't properly aligned to the superior snare, that could be happening because the superior snares are not, uh, they're not a hundred percent and not every sample that pops out of that plugin is a hundred percent sample accurate on the grid. Like it's supposed to be. Well, that's part of the human feel that is intentionally put in. Yeah. Well, totally. This is something that, that is part of what's actually cool about that software, but knowing that you need to account for it if you're going to blend samples with it. Yep. And it's good to use, um, you know, maybe you probably use Trigger or Drumagog or something like that to get the sample to line up, but it's never going to be perfect. No matter how crazy they make those algorithms, you always need to, what I recommend is printing it and then zooming in and looking and seeing what is the relationship, um, between the waveforms. Uh, is it always consistent? Is it moving around a lot? Uh, most of the time, if you're blending snares, it is moving around a lot and you have to go in and make manual corrections. And there's nothing better than uh, editing the actual printed audio because that's just gonna be set in stone forever. Absolutely, and also it has to be said that the superior snares are going to come out inconsistently to a degree i mean if they're playing by themselves you won't notice but if you try to blend them with something without aligning you will notice uh, if if you can you know if your ear is trained to hear this stuff so first of all you need to align it to the superior snare just because the superior snare is not a hundred percent what you think it is 
timing wise. But then on top of that, Trigger or Drumagog don't always spit out samples 100% on the grid either. Uh, they're not, I've only found one version of Trigger that's sample accurate to uh to midi and it's that's a whole that's a whole other ball game right there so no matter what i feel like you need to you need to align this stuff and know that uh yeah second from that is knowing that uh fast attacks are the first thing to kill the transient um typically for snares at least in one in my mixes uh the attack on any kind of compression would either be between as close to zero as possible to 30. So you got to understand what your goals are. If you're, if you're going for zero, then you're basically trying to kill the transient and give the snare a lot more body and sustain. And then you'll put that transient back in with the transient designer later. And if you're going for something like 30 milliseconds, um, you're going to have your transient built in, but then you're going to be lacking a little bit of body. And so you'll have to make up for that later as well. So just understand what the goals are. Um, so what else aside from the low end and the drums uh, do you think needs uh, more attention? I, I noticed you said something about the vocals. Too quiet. Way too quiet. Matter of fact, I felt like when I was listening to the kick, the snare, and the bass were just destroying the volume of the vocals. Now I get um, a lot of the problem I have with balancing type critiques is it's so preferential, you know, and I mean, I'm a guy who mixes 50 plus songs a month and I could give the same balance, let's say to three different bands and every single one of those bands would come back and be like, oh no, this is way off. This is way off. And you know, no one is going to ever hear balance the same, but as a general rule of thumb, I usually like to go a little bit louder on vocals. And I guess, like I said, maybe that's because I do like a lot of the rock stuff and those radio guys, like if you turn in a mix that the vocals don't completely destroy the band, which is ridiculous, but you you're, guess what you're doing a revision so generally at a lot of those like more radio type genres like pop rock etc vocals usually come in a little bit louder and on metal they go down a little bit but um i i like to hear the words that the singer is singing or screaming or screamer is screaming and i felt like the vocals were really getting eating eaten in this mix that being said i thought they were eq'd well in terms of the frequency spectrum and like i could hear them in terms of frequency but what i felt like is that fader just needed to come up you know, two, three dB, not quite sure I'd have to hear it, but you know, definitely for me, it it wanted to come up. One, one important thing to understand about that. Um, and this is a very common, uh, with a lot of people nowadays is that the speakers can be set up in a way that the vocals will be loud or quiet than they really are more, more loud or quiet than they really are. Ribbon effect, Um, correct? Yeah, so um, having your speaker set up incorrectly will can make it possible for the the mono uh, or the center channel to kind of either be louder than it's supposed to be or quieter, and so that can definitely affect how you think um, the vocals are are blended well or balanced. So um, if you have it to where the center channel is getting lost a little bit, you're going to be overcompensating. And if you have it the other way around, you'll be turning the vocals down because they will feel too loud. And one thing I do always when I'm checking my mixes on different speakers is check on those consumer speakers, those tiny little PC speakers, because they are very unforgiving when it comes to vocal balance. Um, if your vocal is too quiet, they'll be completely swallowed on those speakers. I can echo Joey's sen- 
sentiment on that because I've experienced the same thing and I've actually fucked up a few mixes because my listening my listening situation was messed up and I thought the vocals were too loud and I buried them. So speaking from experience that that happens. It's kind of like the department store test, you know, you're at the department store and you can hear the mix over the thing. And, you know, I know those are more radio mixes and stuff. And we're kind of particularly talking about a metal mix. But one thing you can always hear in the department store is the vocals. doesn't matter necessarily what the background guitar lead or whatever is doing, but you can always hear the vocals in every single song and you can sing along to it and you can hear the thing. So um, that being said, you know, like I said, it's one of those things where Generally, when I turn in a mix, I personally try to get the vocals a little hotter than I think they should be. And more oftentimes than not, I get asked to turn them up. Again, that might just be the people that I'm mixing for. Then I get to turn them down. Yeah, and I even though I have my speakers set up properly, at least I think so, um, I don't really trust them 100%. So I always do make sure to do due diligence and check on as many sources as possible. You know, check it in the car, check it on the small speakers, uh, check it in mono. And a lot of times I will figure it out before the band does. And I always try to make sure I'm doing that to myself um, before I send it out. Now, what what do you think about your listening environment, Jensen? Do you have your speakers set up to where it seems like the vocals are, are very loud or buried or any, you know, any tests that you've done, anything like that? As for the vocals for this in particular one, it just, uh, the, the screams, I, I seemed... Th- you know, on point where I was listening, but the vocals weren't really sitting well with me, so they sounded a little bit lower, but I wasn't a huge fan of them, so I left them where they were at. Trying to hide the vocalist. (laughs) Almost, yeah. Um, But as for my listening environment, you know, uh, I just got these speakers about a month ago, so I'm still kind of getting used to them, and I am in a completely treated area, so to my extent so far, I believe that they are set up properly. That's awesome. So, yeah, and it's, I mean, I'm sure you can get online and look up a lot of tests to figure it out. And I, I mean, I'll be the first to tell you that I, I'm too lazy to even try that shit. So I basically just don't rely a hundred percent on my setup and I do the best I can with what I have, but then I make sure to, you know, check it on a lot of sources and you can eliminate a lot of problems. Another thing to mention about, um, singing vocals in particular is that it's very easy to over-EQ them and make them get lost in the mix. And what I say to that is uh, just try to step away. When you, If you find yourself doing a ton of subtractive EQ on the vocals and it's starting to get swallowed, uh, step away from the mix for a couple hours or even a day or so and come back um, and A, B those EQ settings that you went through and see if any of them were too drastic because it's easy to get into that hole uh, where it's never-ending EQ. You know, sometimes something that's cool also for getting vocals under control, and you have to be careful when doing this, but is set, you can set up a multi-band. And the theory behind that is sometimes, you know, you'll have singers that will have a like a really large dynamic range or like certain notes will really pop out of their voice and other ones won't. And that kind of helps like... 
um, keep the frequency response of the vocals a little bit more under control. So like certain notes aren't really popping out as hard as, you know, they, they normally would be naturally. And it keeps it, you know, like a more of a constant EQ curve for the voice as opposed to, you know, in every part of the song, whether they're singing quiet or belting out or they have certain notes that really, you know, for whatever reason, seem like they're a couple dB louder than, you know, the note after that. So sometimes having a multiband, you know, you don't have to go crazy with it, but just, you know, to pin it down a little bit to catch some of them overs. Um, that's something I see a lot in the pop mixing world. Like for example, Tony Maserati is a really big proponent of like a C4 on his vocals. I've seen him in multiple videos and just talking about it. So, um, that's something you can try too, that kind of helps control vocals in a way without, you know, like a traditional compressing or limiting approach. Yeah. It's like a dynamic EQ. Correct. Yes. And I feel like I need to interject something before we get too far removed from this topic of listening, but am I the only person here who thinks that Magic AB is the coolest plugin to come up in a while? Like, I mean, I know that you use it because we've talked about that, and I've heard about it, but I haven't had time to check it out. And I think um, it is worth mentioning because it does make ABing a lot easier. I still do it the hard way. Yeah, I need to check it out as well. So I, I just need to say that based look i don't trust my listening environment either that's a thing and i've been known to to go pretty nuts with uh, getting into that mix vortex where you got no idea what the fuck is going on uh and that plugin has significantly reduced the amount of time i spend in the mix vortex because it's so easy to a b I mean, you guys are you guys are great mixers, so I'm whatever you do is obviously working. But I I just need to throw out that Jensen, like especially the fact that your setup is new, the speakers are new. Yeah, you think they're set up right, but you can't really be totally sure. You're still learning them, getting that plug-in and using it religiously will help you out tremendously to to know what's going on in the mix because if you compare your vocal levels to five songs you really really like with great mixes by dudes who you look up to and your vocals are buried compared to them well there you go you know yeah and that's good uh good point because if you are a being on your listening environment you're going to hear um like oh the vocals are a lot louder in this mix but they're not that loud in mine so that's a really important thing to understand is comparison on your environment um jensen do you have any questions for us uh about your mix i guess i kind of you know maybe have like a general question i'll take the snare for example because this seems to be a big thing so if you're uh clipping on your snare and you know you use your plug in the the jst clip i haven't had the chance to use it yet but just kind of in those kind of situations where you have things clipping, like, would you ever, if you didn't want your mix to say, you know, hit over 6 dB, would you ever have something like a snare or any instrument, for example, ever actually clipping? Uh, the way I use my clip plugin might be different than how other people use it, but I use it to basically get the transient closer to the sustain. In terms of, of dynamic range, I want them to be closer together so that the snare drum isn't a big spike. I want it to be more of like a big fat punch in the face. Um, and the interesting thing about how my plugin works is it preserves that sound of the transient. With A lot of clippers will shave off a lot of the frequency and the EQ 
and make it sound like more of a, a deep punch. But you still get it when you use my plugin, you still get a lot of the smack and the high end frequency content of the snare. But it just puts it a little bit closer to the sustain. It, it, it's almost like you can turn up the sustain without losing that smack. And that's why I use it. But uh, there's other people who use clippers and for destructive reasons. They want to tame that smack. And I would say that my plugin's probably not good for that. And also, real quick, I just want like, could one of you guys that are more technical than me <laughs> describe for the listeners the difference between clipping a channel and a plug-in clipper? Because I feel like that might not be understood out there. That's Joel territory there. Me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, you're the you're the computer programmer here, Joey. You should be the well. The question is um, clipping analog hardware versus clipping in in the digital realm. Gotcha. Okay. So, well, analog bends. Okay. And that's the best way I can explain it, which is a really hard thing to explain because it's so abstract. And if you've never heard it and you've never done it, um, it's really confusing. Like, for example, Chris Lordell just always like, dude, my sound's all about bending my console. It's all about bending, 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 bending. You're like, what the hell is bending? I used to think. And then the first time I sat down on an SSL and I watched the guy go like, just crank the meter into the red and then pull back the master fader up and down. And all of a sudden I heard the bend curve and he's like, check this out, listen to the mix, listen to the saturation. So analog gear tends to saturate in certain ways. And sometimes that's favorable or really bad depending on what kind of sound you want. But analog, um, when you kind of like clip analog, it can um, give you like a favorable saturation. And they, we call that bending, you know, like my SSL mix bus, when you drive that thing into the red, like mine's just all red, like a Christmas tree when I'm mixing into it. You don't want to clip it where it's distorted but you want to clip it where it warms up the mix a little bit and kind of glues it and it kind of gives it a nice natural compression so yeah analog doesn't have a ceiling i mean there is i guess there is a ceiling somewhere kind of but it's not really uh hard strictly yeah it's not strictly defined as zero or anything like that there's a point of going past zero uh for example, if you've got an API uh, preamp, you can just keep going and going and going with the input gain. And then as long as you have enough resistance on the output, you can get it back down to line level to where it's not clipping over zero in the digital realm. And you're, that's the effect of, of bending, uh, as he's saying. So in the software world, uh, we are constrained to zero and that's just because there's a limited number of bits to describe uh, the sample of audio. So um, what a clipper is doing there is kind of wave shaping, I guess, uh, determining the math and and what frequencies are saved and which ones are discarded. Um, and it gets very complicated uh, in terms of the math, but the there's a definitely a difference between software clipping and analog clipping they're not the same thing at all no but uh but i feel like a a good use of a plug-in clipper like yours uh can get you closer to that and funny that you brought up apis because i i use those all the time and in lots of ways i almost feel like those don't even get going until you're clipping them i get a lot of questions about do you use your apis for color and actually i find that my apis are great for totally clean 
crystal clear signals as well. Transparent, yeah. because yeah, you just don't drive them hard because the, that distortion, that doesn't kick in until it does what you just said. It starts bending it. Uh, but the, the analog gear is uh, multifaceted and, and pretty cool. But yeah, with, with clippers, you can kind of start to go that way. The other thing uh, with clipping in terms of uh, actual snare drums, uh, that is also kind of the trick of making the snare pop out in the mix because when you're using a digital clipper, you're increasing the RMS level of, of the signal. So the snare is going to be way louder than it ever would be otherwise. The first time I went to a mastering engineer, I brought in my mix and I thought I had it slamming. It was a metal band and I got the mix back and I'm like... All right, cool. Sounds good. I got in the car. I'm like, what the hell happened to my snare? It literally sounds like a pancake. This is back in like 2003 when, you know, no one was really clipping. And I was really pissed because I was like, it's loud, but how come all the snares on the radio punch through and have attack and mine sounds like a pancake? And it turns out because he, you know, he just used like a hard limiter. And it killed all the transients, whereas, you know, all the guys like at like Sterling and, for example, when they were mastering the big budget stuff, they were clipping their converters and they were getting their masters super loud and maintaining the transients. So that might be something you might want to look into is, I mean, if, for example, if you want to get into it for free, you can go download the G-Clip. It's free. And it allows you to kind of just get a feel for what a clipper does. And you can use that on your mastering. It allows you to get your stuff mastered loud, but, can, you know, or com I should say competitive as opposed to loud and keep the transient impact of your kick and snare. So I would experiment with that on the master bus and to see if that helps, you know, you uh, your mix retain some of the transient detail. Yeah. And if you get your mix to a point where the snare is, is pretty loud and in charge and kind of over top of everything, that's really cool when a uh, that's a place where a clipper can come in and kind of shave that off and you'll still get the loud snare but you'll bring it back down to the mix um, what else aside from the snare um, is there anything else that you would want to ask us while you have us here I guess I kind of have a question for high end I, I kind of tend or I kind of start to notice you know once I get further into the mix the high ends kind of lacking because the drums you know you got all your drums which are a little bit lower except for you know your overheads so how do you guys compensate for that high end do you let your vocals and you know cymbals and guitars kind of take it up or you know how do you compensate for your drums being so you know because you want your drums to be so impactful that you know you can always lose stuff first of all if you get your low end under control your high end is gonna be a lot easier to deal with. Yeah. Specifically related to the mix that you sent us, that I think would help you out a lot. It'll be like, you know, taking the blanket off or, you know, something, some sort of metaphor along those lines. Uh, the clouds will part or whatever. Like you'll be able to see, you'll be able to hear what's going on way better and, may, and make more appropriate decisions. So I feel like, I mean, there's a ton of things you can do for high end, but until you get that low end from swallowing the entire mix, it's almost like the same problem as the snare and the sample being out of phase with each other. You do a bunch of stuff and you might just make it really harsh to overcompensate for the bass killing it. 
I have a specific technique you can try, um, especially with cymbals and guitars. A lot of times I feel like there's, I would call them like masking frequencies in every sound. And this is something that as you get more experienced, you'll hear more and more and more, you know, little frequency spikes that piss you off. For example, I literally hate more than anything ever 3.4 3.4 to 3.6 K sometimes 3.2. I cut it out of everything for Joey. I know it's 4 K cause him and I always discuss. I the, hate 4 K. Oh, I hate <laughs> 3.4. So we certain times, certain frequencies, um, maybe ringing as I'll say, meaning there's like a spike in them and you, it's, it's hard to look at a, a frequency analyzer or whatever on a EQ. And I know a lot of people like to do that EQ matching and all that stuff. What I'm saying is you need to learn to hear it. Okay. It's really important to learn that, what that stuff sounds like. So you can grab an EQ and you can kind of go move around that like upper mid range, like 2K to four and a half and look for stuff that's really, really freaking annoying. I'm talking like guitars, cymbals, maybe even some vocals, but you really find it in distorted guitars and cymbals and kind of like notch out some of those frequencies. And you can use like a, a, a EQ with a really narrow Q uh, with. So you can notch out like just that frequency and you can be ruthless with it. So notch frequency destroying that stuff. Um, sometimes you pull out a little bit of like a, a ring up at like say three eight and then another one at four and a guitar. And all of a sudden you're like, wow, I've got a lot more clarity in my vocal and my cymbals. And maybe there's a little bit of, you know, mud at like 2K on a cymbal or something. And when you, when you notch out a few of those little things, sometimes a small notch at one or two little spots across an entire mix makes a huge difference in your clarity. I mean, an absolute night and day. When you A-B it, you go, oh my God, I can't believe I just got so much more width, dimension, clarity, and separation in the mix. And all I did is cut two or three stupid little bands of EQ with like, you know, a 50 EQ width um, cut. Yeah, one thing uh, to kind of expand on what you're saying and to put it into a different perspective. If you can think of your high end, pretty much everything above uh, like 4K, for example, as keys on a keyboard, um, if all of those keys on the keyboard were playing, they were all pushed down at the same time, you'd have a really loud, uh, stupid sound that just takes up a lot of space. So when you're going through and you're cleaning up a lot of those ringing frequencies, um, you're going to be creating a lot more space and making it a lot, bringing in a lot more clarity. Uh, so just think of it as like um, you're letting go of some of the keys on the keyboard, and now there's a lot more. You know, it's not as loud. There's a lot more space. Uh, that's that's at least how I think of it. And um, it is easy to get carried away and remove too many frequencies. So I always. I always try to approach it from the point of view where I'm listening to it and I'm like, what frequencies are immediately sticking out to me that I want gone that will clear up this mix? And normally for me, it's 4K, but that's because we work in a genre of music where everything is saturated to fuck and everything is a wall of sound. So um, 4K tends to get bunched up and and quite overlapped and almost feedback-like. Uh, so removing some of that that 4K feedback overall will create a lot of clarity. I've noticed that that exactly what you guys are talking about it varies, but I think 4K is a good a good average. I've noticed it be anywhere from two ish to seven, just depending on what you know just depending on the mix but some symbols even yeah um like uh the sweet ride oh man people <sighs> fucking hate that symbol it has a ton of 8k i don't know how or why 
But every time that symbol is in a mix and I open up the song and I can hear it, I'm like, God damn, I got to get rid of that stupid sweet ride frequency that's popping through. So uh, some symbols just have that that effect and can take up a lot of space. The same thing can be had for guitars, because if you think about what a guitar really is, it's just the uh, the uh, signal of the, the pickup being clipped to fucking hell and back. So... Um, uh, there's going to be a lot of frequencies that are almost feedback-like. You know, there's uh, there's a really cool piece of software out there that I've uh, I've talked about before on a Creative Live, but it's made by this company called Harman H A R M A N, and it's called Harman How to Listen. This is a company that makes high-end audio gear, and you can find this How to Listen program on one of their internal blogs and this is the software that they send out to their sales reps to train them to be able to speak about what's actually going on with different hundred thousand dollar speaker systems to uh, knowledgeable audiophile clients so what this what this piece of software does is it loads in different EQ curves randomly or saturation settings or reverb or all kinds of different things to whatever files you choose to load in, but it doesn't tell you what it's doing and you have to guess what. And it steps up in difficulty levels. That's like, awesome. Yeah, it'll start with high and low and then it'll be high, low, mid and whatever. So like, say that you take the same five songs that you're using in Magic AB and you load them into this Harmon uh, How to Listen software, and you just do this for like half an hour or something, a couple times a week or something, like you know, going to the gym for your ears. What you'll begin to notice from working on metal is exactly what Joey said, is there's frequencies that almost sound like feedback. And you can really tell this when you hear these EQ bands boosted and you start to really spot how much noise is actually in a metal mix. And I think until I really learned to listen for this stuff, I didn't even realize how much of a problem this really was. But it's a it's a really big deal. Really, really, really big deal. Once I got that under control, my mixes got better overnight. And so I think that that little piece of training software can, can help someone get from not hearing those problems to hearing them within like a couple of weeks, which is pretty cool because it took me a few years. All right, Jensen, do you have any other questions for us? No, I can't really think of any right now at the moment. Cool. Um, I want to thank you for coming on and, and letting us tear your mix apart. And also, Jensen, you're the post of the week and your post is, how do you build a portfolio to get future clients? Tired of mixing just raws and looking for clients but need to build a portfolio? I think in general, there's a lot more power in what other people say about you than what you can effectively say about yourself. And so the most important thing, in my opinion, is no matter how you go about doing this, whether you need to sell yourself on the street corner or what, you need to pay people to record with you. Like It doesn't matter how you go about establishing this. You need to find a way to get people in the door 
who will be stoked on what you give them, who will be happy to post it for you and tell other people about how much they enjoy it. And once you, once you figure that out, it'll, uh, it'll take care of itself. It's almost like a little machine. If, if you figure out the formula for that, for getting people in, uh, and you give them good quality stuff that, that they'll talk about, you only have to feed that machine for a little while before it starts to, starts to feed itself. So I would say do whatever you need to do, and that's kind of broad, but still do whatever you need to do to get people to let you mix their stuff, even if it's free. Yeah, word of mouth is really powerful, and that's how I began, um, basically just recording people for dirt cheap. Uh, until I built up enough, um, you know, repertoire, uh, that people wanted to come back and, um, it really spread like wildfire. And I think just doing two or three bands for free is going to give you access to at least nine, 12, maybe 15 bands because they all have three or four friends that are in three or four different bands. And try to find bands that are good, you know, going to shows, for example, when I got started, I was like, Joey, we're... Um, it was, it was all word of mouth. My entire career has been word of mouth. I've never really went out and, you know, advertised or anything like that in my local market. And I was started off playing in a band and just going to shows and like, Hey dude, you know, I record, we should do something. And you know, you play with a cool band and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, you, you play your stuff in the car and hopefully they like it. And then they sit down with you and you hang out and you, you know, you record a song for dirt cheap. And if you kick ass and do a great job, they'll be back and they'll tell their friends. And after a while, you know, you find out you're recording the whole scene of kids and the genre you want to do around in your area. And then hopefully with a little bit of luck, some of that stuff starts breaking and other people in other regions start hearing about you. And then all of a sudden you're recording bands and people are driving a couple hours a day to come record with you. And it just grows from there. So you just got to go out and be a hustler. You can't be afraid to step outside of your comfort zone. You have to go up and be proactive with people and be friendly and sincere and genuine and, just be cool and people will gravitate towards that. And, um, you know, some of those clients will turn into long relationships and, you know, if you get a little bit of luck and some of those bands eventually break, you know, if they might take you with, and then all of a sudden you start getting bigger and better stuff and you meet more people and you can see how it grows exponentially. Absolutely. Yeah. Just going out there and hustling. That's what it's all about. And, uh, if you, you listen to the show, we talk often about how you shouldn't chase clients, but that's, when you're on the other end of the spectrum after you've already built some kind of portfolio or repertoire. So um, when you're starting out, you do want to chase clients. You want to maybe even do some for free because you want to, I always like to say this, you want to do work until it's uh, until you get to the point where somebody is willing to pay for it. So um, do it for free, do it for dirt cheap until your clients are offering you money. And that's when you know, you're ready to kind of pick through the weeds a little bit. And they will offer it. Yeah, it'll come once you get to that point. So awesome. Thanks for being on the show, Jensen. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. This this was definitely great and it helped a whole lot. Awesome. Thanks again, guys. All right, dude, take it easy. Thank man. you very yep. much. Have a good one. All right, so we're going to spend a little bit of time on some Q&A now. First question comes from Alex Barnhart and he asks, My biggest issue is getting mixes to translate well. A lot of time I think I have a sweet mix and then realize the mix sounds totally different on every different set of speakers I try. Magic AB. Yeah, uh, Alex, get Magic AB. 
and spend a lot of time listening to other stuff, not just your song. Get a couple different sets of speakers too. That helps in being able to reference back and forth in real time and actually hear what your stuff sounds like coming out of different speakers. And actually be mixing onto these other speakers. I think that that's important too, like switching to your boombox, for instance, and mix for a while through that. As you know, don't just mix on one set and then go listen. I mean, some guys might do that, but I've just noticed that it always helps to be constantly jumping around between different systems that you know. Yep. And it's, uh, I think it's hard for some people to have that set up. Um, one thing you can do if you're looking to figure that out is get something like a central station or, um, uh, on the higher end of stuff, you can get one of those dangerous, what's the dangerous music box. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I've got both. They're both great. Check those out. Um, I use a central station, and one thing that's interesting is if you are hooking up studio-grade stuff to consumer-grade stuff, you might have to have a step-down box, which will convert the signal down from what it is. Um, if you have a Sweetwater rep, just tell him what you're trying to do, and he'll help you. <laughs> Sweetwater's awesome for that. <laughs> totally. All right, next question comes from Jesse Wall. He asks, how do you deal with a mix that you've been listening to for a while that starts becoming a big fatigue and flat to your ears, but still maintain the initial vibe and excitement? Sorry for the run-on sentence. Yeah, thanks, Jesse. <laughs> Stop mixing. That's my answer. Period. Yeah, come back. Yep, uh, come back to it on a different day. Uh, and another thing that I like to mention on that subject is uh, I look up to Chris Lord Algae and one thing he says is if a song takes him longer than two hours, he feels like he's blown it. And uh, I know you got to get to a certain level to where you can actually follow through with that type of perspective. Um, But it is true that there is a vibe between you and the song and that initial vibe will go away. And so it's best to kind of capitalize on it um, early on while you can. And there is a prerequisite for that, though, that I think bears mentioning because super important. You can mix a song in two hours, but the prep has to be completely done and right on. Like, it's got to be ready for mix. It can't be one of these situations a lot of these amateur mixers get in where they still need to do some editing and some mixing and maybe like the MIDI needs to be moved around a little or, you know, who, who knows what the particular problem is, but song needs to be ready to mix straight up. It's a vibe killer. You get a yeah. good assistant. That really helps because then you just open, you hit play and you start turning knobs and getting good sounds. It's the most important thing. And if you don't have an assistant, um, you should do the prep on a different day than you do the mix. Totally. Or ask for files to be prepped uh, a certain way before they come in, uh, but that that happens. That's never realistic, so just forget I said that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right, that's going to wrap it up for us and for this episode. I want to have a special thanks to Jensen Manning for coming on and letting us talk about his mix and giving him some pointers. We also want to thank Alex Barnhart and Jesse Wall for asking questions. If you guys have questions you would like us to answer, just go to www.joeysturgis.com slash podcast and send us something. Um, Check out our website, subscribe. And next week, we're going to have a special guest on the air. Uh, We're not going to tell you who it is right now because we don't know. That's going to do it for this episode. Uh, Thanks for tuning in, guys. Thank you. Thanks. And uh, fuck off.
The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Creative Live, the world's best online classroom for creative professionals with classes on songwriting, engineering, mixing, and mastering. Go to creativelive.com slash audio to start learning now. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is also brought to you by Protone Pedals, the secret tone weapon for guitar experts everywhere. Go to protonepedals.com to take your tone to the next level. To ask us questions, suggest topics, and interact, visit urmacademy.com and subscribe today.